Warning. This episode contains spoilers for all aired episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, as well as spoilers for all published books in the Song of Ice and Fire series. You're listening to a podcast of Ice and Fire, episode 134 for the week of February 16th, 2014. Welcome back, everyone, to the longest-running, award-winning podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series and occasionally HBO's Game of Thrones. This is Amin, and we're joined by our recurring guest host. Hi, guys. I'm Mikal. I go by Ink Azarine on the forums. And today we have a special episode where we are interviewing Damon Stone, game designer from Fantasy Flight Games. Welcome, Damon. Hi, it's nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. It's good to have you here. We're looking forward to chatting with you for a long time. <laughs> it's finally good to be able to hook up. Yeah. Welcome to the halls of House Manwoody. That's our, our home here. Is um, it warm here in Dorne? It's pretty warm. Uh, we have refreshments, by the way. We got Arbor Gold, Dornish Red, and some lemon cakes if you need. During oh, this fantastic. So, yeah. Why, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into what we're going to be covering today, which is a Game of Thrones, the living card game, we generally ask have a few questions from people who come onto the podcast. We're just going to relate to the series. So we get started off with how and when did you personally get into the Song of Ice and Fire series? Um, you know what? It actually happened long enough ago that I don't remember 100% precisely how it ended up happening. I think it was a... I think Game of Thrones had been recommended to me by uh, my best friend, and at the time, um, a college student who was uh, working on a writing degree. So he and I had worked together years ago and gone to school together, but he was you know, working on his degree, and he's like, hey, there is this series of novels that I've just started reading. The second one just came out, and I think you'd really enjoy it. And so he lent me the first one, and I was hooked. So you're one of the, the long wait people. Like you had to wait for the, especially Dance of Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started reading, um, I think it was probably about 1999, I want to say. Um, like right, just I should say right after, a little bit after. A Clash of Kings came out, and so by the time I got through Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, um, A Storm of Swords was like, "Hey, this is coming out." Sorry for uh, oh, no Wash. He's a yeah. little rambunctious doggy. Oh, he's a, is he a fan of the series as well? Or? <laughs> he's a huge fan. He really enjoys watching them. Mm. He gets very excited every time he sees Ghost. Mm. Yeah. And I remember how it was back then, like, if you, it was basically word of mouth kind of thing, and then you'd be like, yeah, these books by George R. R. Martin, they'd be like, George who? Like, it, it wasn't well known at the time, right? It was very, it was growing steadily, but it was a word of mouth kind of thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, it, it was. However, I actually knew George's work um, from editing uh, Wild Cards and Fever Dream, which is still probably to date my favorite uh, vampire novel. Oh yeah, Fever Dream is awesome. Like I, I got into his work after, uh, like I read a Song of Ice and Fire and had to wait for Dance of Dragons. So I got into all his sci-fi and his horror stuff, and you can see that he's not a he wasn't a fluke writer. He built up to this, and he has decades of good work that got him to where yes. he is. 
then I found out that he had uh, directed like my favorite episode of oh, what was that show? Um, I think it was The Outer Limits. Oh yeah, was that Sand Kings the episode? Yes, yes. it was Sand yeah. Kings. That is a freaky story. <laughs> I, I I love it. I yeah. really do. And he puts it all together. Like, he's able to cross different things like sci-fi and horror and that sort of thing. And he just he just he's not like a, a person who just works in one area, uh, one genre. He's able to branch them, and he doesn't really see distinctions. Sometimes he sees them overlapping. Yeah. So. Um, it it was it's actually really weird. I mean, I've sort of like had George in my life for a, a, a fair amount of time because when I was uh, much younger, he uh, wrote my like favorite television series, which was Beauty and the Beast hmm. uh, with Linda Hamilton, who later, be- of course, became like super famous for her role in uh, the Terminator movies. So you're a big fan of George. This is awesome. Like, uh... <laughs> I am. I, I, I didn't know that I was. Like, I didn't realize that these things that I really loved were all being created by the same person. I mean, because they are so disseparate. I mean, a you know, my favorite episode of a sort of like freaky, sort of like weird, not exactly science fiction television show than my favorite uh, television show growing up, which was sort of like, you know, uh, not even really a drama, sort of like an action drama kind of thing that was like popular in the 80s. And then a novel, or uh, I should say, collected works of you know short stories about these really weird superheroes. Mm. And I just there's no way that these should all be written by the same person. It's just you know very very uncommon. Have you uh, checked out the Dream Songs collection that he has? Uh, I have checked out the I believe it was that's the two parter. Yeah, that has like all his different short stories from his. Yes, um, I have the first one that I've read through. I did not get the second one to. I have not read that yet. Yeah, there's there's some gems in there. He he was start. I think that his short story was how he started. It all started with mm-hmm. short stories and moving forward. Like, yeah. Now he has like the longest series ever. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mikhail, did you have any questions? Yeah. Um, well, going back to the books, I was wondering which one is your favorite. Oh, people always ask me that. And my answer kind of tends to change um, based on, you know, what I'm reading right now or, you know, um, what themes that I'm sort of trying to bring into the card game. Um, I don't know. I think that, uh, again, with Thrones will always have a special place in my heart as, you know, that's the one that started the series for me. Um, But... I'm sort of torn between, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Storm of Swords. Yeah, I think a lot of people say that one just because it's like event after event after event. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's like really hard to put down when you're reading that for the first time. Yeah, the very first time I read it, it had a huge, huge, you know, just sort of impact on my impression of what the series was and where it was going and how this was all sort of like coming together in ways that I did not expect. Mm-hmm. And who are your favorite characters in the series? Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel, I always feel a little weird choosing like the same ones that everyone else does. I mean, I think Arya is awesome. Um, I have a lot of, 
I don't know, Tyrion, I think, is probably the one I identify the most with. Um, I'm probably a bit of a smartass. Frequently don't know when to just shut up and, you know, let everybody just go with the last thing that I said instead of trying to get the last word in one more time. So there's, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with those two. I'll okay. stick with those two. I'll, I will commit. Lots <laughs> of choices. Jason uh, Walden from FFG is a big Stannis fan. So are you on the board the Stannis train or? or no? no, not at all. I <laughs> I have a strong dislike for Stannis. Hmm. It's often it's often is that way. Like people either like him or dislike him. I think like he's yeah. uh, he goes one way or the other. Well, for me, it it has to do a lot with the fact that I think that he's a little too much for the political expediency. Like, you know, he gives up his religion and he forces all of these changes on his people, all, you know, in the name of power. He's so caught up with trying to to do the thing that, you know, he feels is his right, that he doesn't stop to think about whether or not it's actually good for anyone else. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point, because, like... People who, I mean, I'm I'm so so on Stannis, but I think people who really like him, kind of go like, ah, oh, he's just doing exactly what's right. He's so just, and it's like, yeah, for Stannis. But, <laughs> you know. And he's only one well, form of justice too. I mean, there's different forms of justice, and he's just the by the books kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Type. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my role playing days, I was hmm. I very rarely played lawful good. <laughs> uh, you know, is or or even particularly lawful neutral, unless I kind of wanted to be uh, trying to think of a non-inappropriate term for it. Uh, unless I wanted to be like the very sort of like self-righteous type of individual, where it's you know my way or the highway sort of type. I tended to offer more of a neutral good or chaotic neutral or chaotic good type so yeah. you end up with those groups where you have like four chaotic neutrals and one lawful good doesn't really work out <laughs> <laughs> everyone loves to be chaotic neutral at least back when you're younger i remember that like it's just because you couldn't do what you want but. yeah there's a chaotic neutral is great for like you know the anarchist who wants to have something to rebel against are you into like the the theories at all? I mean, the examples like who John's parents are, but just in theories in general. <laughs> yeah, I, I I am, I am. Do you have any particular favorite theories or favorite crackpot theories or likely theories? Are we so it's okay to talk about these? Everybody here has like, read all the books. Oh we yeah, we'll to... have a spoiler warning. Like we usually play play one at the start for these kind of episodes. It's for all five books. So okay, great. Um, I think that my. My favorite theory right now is based on the idea that there are that Azor Ahi and, and uh, Prince who was promised are either not the same person or is m- has been reborn as multiple individuals. So it's like even even three people potentially. The way saying like the dragon has three heads. I think. Yes. Yep. Who, who would those three be then? Would it be like Danny, John, and somebody, or what would your yeah, actually, Danny, uh, John, and possibly Tyrion as the third. Because hmm. yeah, I think because it's, it's so, so many signs that like more than one person meeting the prophecy, and it doesn't necessarily have to be one person. That's that's correct. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, po- you know, prophecies are notorious about being difficult to properly interpret. Yeah. So who's to say, you know, what is actually the fulfilling of the prophecy and what is just somebody's, you know, misinterpretation? Yeah, the prophecies are a big, big part of the series, like a bit, one of the fun parts and, and from sometimes the frustrating parts. Sometimes I think I, when they're too on the ball, like the Cersei one, for example, seems to be happening like check, check, check. Everything's happening. I don't like too much of the fate being controlled by that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really interesting. Okay, uh, one kind of like final question here, in terms of the books, um, especially since you were one of the people that waited. So, how did you find the Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons? Like for some people, it was at least initially a bit of a disappointment uh, until the rereads, and other people liked it right away. Like, how did you feel about them? Uh, I liked it right away. Um, I, despite my having said, you know, my favorite book on my first read through was you know pretty much the most action-packed out of all of them i'm a real big fan of like the political intrigue i actually really like them i think i probably like them more than anybody i know actually if i'm gonna be completely honest at least through the the first read because to me it was all about like we finally get to see things from cersei's point of view we get more information on what's going on with jamie and bran we you know, just get lots of these pieces of information that are really setting the stage for you know the final two books and that to me is incredibly exciting because of the promise that they have in them and uh, are you into dorn at all do you like dorn because they're, they're uh, that... yeah um i love dorn it's okay. my favorite location if i were in westeros and i had to choose some place to live it would be dorn oh you're fitting in right here on the podcast so <laughs> <laughs> very much so yeah what, uh, some people have been doing something called Feast Dance. It's basically reading the Feast for Crows and Dance Dragons together merged, like with the chapters overlapping. Have you heard of that before? I have. I have not had an opportunity to do it. Um, a lot of my rereads have more to do with uh, being work-oriented. So I've got sort of a specific way that I tend to, uh, to read the novels uh, for that, which is uh, incompatible with that particular format to date. Were you working at Fantasy Flight Games when, when Dance of Dragons came out, or was that after? Like, did you have to read it as a work thing? I'm not sure I actually remember. Dance of Dragons came out in 2011. Yeah, I was working for the company at that point. I remember Jason saying, yeah, when it came out, he had to power through it really even faster than he would have because he was getting work material out of it, like it was new material for, for new games. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I pretty much did the same thing. I think I read it over the course of like three days. So you basically like you come into work, it's like, yep, yeah, got to read the book. You got to read the book. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's that's not no. It wasn't. It wasn't three days. It was like five days. Um, I think I got the book on a Thursday. I read it Thursday. Hopped on a plane. Read it the entire way to San Francisco from uh, St. Paul. And then read it every possible opportunity that weekend, got back on a plane, I think Sunday night or Monday morning, and read it, got into work the next day and finished it. Wow. So I think, it, I think it was like a Thursday to Monday sort of thing. Do you like the HBO Game of Thrones series? I really do. I, I was really torn when you know they announced that they were going to do it. You know, or actually, when they announced that they had bought the... Uh, they had optioned it. It's like, hey, we're going to create a pilot for this. 
I was like, oh, I hope they do it. I hope they pick it up. I hope, you know, it gets green-lighted and actually becomes a real thing. And then it did, and then it's like, yes, we are actually going to air this episode. And then it was suddenly just, it occurred to me, like, this could be terrible. It may not live up to, you know, all of the fantasy casting that I had done for five or six years. And for a while, we didn't even know if it would be made, right? I mean, they got it, but there was no guarantee it would be made and then it was made thankfully yes um so what are your like i guess high and low points of the um of the show so far well i understand particularly since i essentially do a a similar thing where i'm trying to recreate the novels in a different medium i mean you have to make changes you can't follow faithfully the story the way that you might choose because some things just don't play out um they don't come across properly wow. the dog is a purist <laughs> <laughs> don't change so, anything that's me um so i understand why they make changes some of the changes that they've made i have not understood at all and some of them that i've understood completely and you know when they were talking about creating the series i actually said that you know what i bet you anything that this gets changed and this gets changed and you know, this one will probably get changed in this way. And I was right on some of those. And some of them completely, you know, grooming. The lack of some of the named characters in the book who have impact, uh, although it might be subtle, on uh, the storylines uh, has been a surprise to me. So, you know, Cal Drogo's Blood Riders turning on Danny and then her getting her own blood riders out of that, you know, situation. And then them, you know, shepherding her and giving her advice and acting as her queen's guard. Their portion of that is completely gone. And, you know, there are characters who are still alive in the books who were killed off uh, in the show. So it'll be interesting to see how their roles in the books uh, get I don't know, handled, resolved, whether or not they're given to different characters or if they're just rewritten entirely. There are some butterfly effect kind of changes that we don't know yeah, what's going to happen later, especially with the, with the books coming out as well. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I really look at it as a reimagining of the story rather than a retelling of the story. So it makes it really easy for me to just sit back and enjoy something else that was written in this world with a lot of familiar characters, but it's not precisely the same story. As long as I can keep that mindset, it's actually really easy to enjoy it for me. Do you have a favorite season or do you like them all? Or I don't really say that I have a favorite season or if I do, it's not happened yet. Right. Could be season four the way it's looking. It could be season four. Yeah. I've actually have not. I refuse to watch trailers. Hmm. That's probably really smart. Yeah, I can definitely understand, especially if you already know what's uh, like what's already going to happen, like from reading the books. You at least want to preserve some of the show stuff to be a surprise. Yeah. So, and that's actually uh, a pretty important thing for me. Is you know, obviously, you know, I knew the Red Wedding was coming up, but I had no idea in what fashion it was going to happen in the show. You know, nor did I understand exactly what kind of impact it was going to have to actually see that scene, um, you know, given form. It was, was 
know, very powerful and very disturbing. Yeah, it was actually funny on um on the season three uh, Blu-ray. They have this whole feature about the red wedding, and George is like, "They made it more brutal than me. They killed Talisa." He's like laughing like crazy. They they made it worse. They made it worse. The worst thing I've ever written. And I was like, George, you have a weird sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. I know, right? Cool. So we're going to move on to the gaming side of this episode, uh, but before we get into Game of Thrones, the living card game, we're just a little bit curious about your own background a bit, like, starting out with, so how did you like first get into gaming, card gaming, or otherwise, I guess, role-play gaming as well, you said? Um, well, I got into gaming uh, through my dad. He introduced me to chess probably about seven, maybe six um, I mean, not that I was good at that age. You know, I was very much a case of, hey, the horse moves this way. <laughs> um, but it was really sort of my first introduction to games that were not something like, you know, Shoots uh, and Ladders or Candyland. And uh, from there, I one of my... I want to say one of my aunts bought me... Uh, like the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons, and I ended up uh, starting to play that. A friend of mine went to uh, Gen Con and got the alpha release of Magic and enough to share, so started with Magic and the alpha and beta releases. Beta is when I got my first when I got my first cards, but alpha is when I started playing. Was Magic a, a big hit off the start, or did it take a while to build up? No, it built it built really slowly. Like hmm. we showed up to the store where a couple of guys had brought back some stuff, and I think the biggest gathering that we had when everybody who played um, during like the beta unlimited uh, time period was maybe twelve people, hmm. and that was like everybody that we knew in the city. <laughs> Did you get to keep and, any of your cards since then, or? Oh no, I've gotten. I'm pretty sure I've gotten rid of all of those. There might be something left at my parents' house hmm. somewhere. Some. I have no idea if they're worth something. anything or not. That'd be interesting if they just for collectors' wise, right? I, I'm sure that they're not in good enough shape to be of any particular uh, note. Do you have any of those experiences that left like a particularly strong impact on you? That maybe. You know, made you decide to get professionally into gaming or anything like that? I'm really not sure that I could point to any one particular thing. I just really love the way that games can bring people together. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm old enough that video games were something that I was growing up as they were really being created. You know, I remember, you know, Pong on the TV. I remember, you know, there being a Pong console. It's the only game that it played <laughs> for all intents and purposes. I mean, I was really young. Competing for consoles. They probably had different companies saying our Pong one is better than this one. Is yeah. <laughs> Pong versus, like, Breakout. And they were, you know, they were one-off gaming systems. Mm. So... Back then, it, there was no like online play. If you played a two-player game, it was, or you had an opponent, you actually were playing against an opponent sitting right, you know, next to you. Uh, but 
I always like tabletop games a little bit more because I got to play across from somebody. We could play together, we could play against each other, but it was, you know, a little bit more, you know, human interaction. You know, as it is, I have a Wii and I have an Xbox and I have three or four games for each and I probably won't be buying anything else anytime soon. They're just, you know, I, I play them when I want my introverted Damon needs to be alone and veg out time. Now, when I want to socialize and have fun, it's tabletop games. Yeah, there's something about tabletop games. I guess maybe the slower speed of them, you actually have time to chat on the side or do something, whereas a video game is your hands are full and you're kind of sucked into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, video games tend to be more uh, fast twitch and... You know, if I'm going to do something fast, which generally speaking, I'd rather go out and play a sport. And um, how did you end up working with Fantasy Flight Games? Um, I started playtesting uh, a Game of Thrones for them maybe about 2005, maybe 2006. I think it was probably around 2005, maybe even a little bit before that. And after having done that for a while, Nate French, who was the designer before me, had on occasion said hey we have an opening here if there's anybody that is you know that's a playtester that is interested in potentially you know working here and they were never designed positions they were always like you know organized play coordinator or you know here's a thing in the warehouse and you know somebody working for sales yeah there was some thought uh, particularly with one or two of them but I just, you know, I just never quite worked out right. And then after a bit of time, I was one of those longer term, deeper play testers. And um, he had a new game that he was going to be directing his time and energy on, uh, which turned out to be uh, Lord of the Rings, which is a co-op LCG. And he uh, told me and a couple other players or a couple other play testers that he was going to have to pass the game on and we were on his short list of people that he wanted to hand the game over to. And if we were interested, we should apply. And I did and did a couple of phone interviews and then um, they brought me out for face to face and they offered me the job a couple days later. So basically uh, right place, right time, knowing the right person. Did you interview with Christian D. Peterson or was it somebody else? In the- no, um, I interviewed with, um, Nate and with uh, Michael Hurley, who's the vice president of product development, who's uh, my boss. Do you have any advice for anybody who would like to work in your industry or kind of do what you do in the future? Get a degree in writing or history, something that really involves uh, learning like the creative process is really helpful. You're going to have to come up with ideas and learn how to take a critique and take that feedback and create numerous iterations of uh, all of your work. So getting used to having people, you know, say, okay, well, I like this, but, and then taking that and turning it into something even more awesome than what you originally had is really important. Did you find uh, people you're working with that is coming through the playtesting as a lot of people came through that or do they go through design so like how did the people end is, is that common to come through playtesting or is that uncommon for you uh, I, I don't think it's particularly common um there's not a lot of people who've done it i think a lot of a lot of people just come from the 
I play these games, and so I'm a fan, and I happen to catch wind of the fact that there's a, a job opening. Kind of related to that, I mean, I was just because just I was doing background stuff for this interview, I saw that you were into professional blues dancing, or, or still are? Still am, yeah. Yeah. So you, you're a teacher and a competitor in professional blues? Uh, not really a competitor now. I do mostly uh, mostly judging. But yeah, I still travel around the world and teach uh, a fair amount. It's where all of my vacation days go. Is there anything from that background, that experience that has, that has been transferable or helped you in, in game design at all? Uh, definitely, the, uh, again, the creative process. the Creating a piece of choreography and then having people critique it, having to stare at something and work through the first inspiration, which is usually pretty easy, that, you know, that glimmer of that idea that gets you really excited. And you have a finite amount of time for you to finish a sort of creative project before that first spark goes away. And from that point, it's really just, you know, the work getting out day after day and putting in the time to complete it. And then recognizing that just because I have now, you know, reached the end of this thing, it doesn't mean I'm actually finished. And it's a very, very important thing to recognize that if you're writing, if you're creating a piece of choreography, you know, if you're doing uh, a painting or sculpting, that getting that end result is not necessarily the real end. You know, there's refinement, there's polishing that has to happen. I just think it must be a really interesting background to, to come from that and to be at Fantasy Flight Games. Like, are you the best dancer at the parties they have there then? or <laughs> We don't really have dance parties, um, <laughs> short of like, you know, the big ball at Gen Con. Hmm. And I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily the best person at the entire Gen Con ball, but I get noticed. We'll put it that way. And just a quick side note, if we can go on tangent, I just noticed on your Skype is interesting. So blues a statement of race, class, sexuality, and identity. Can you like explain that a bit? Yeah, it's uh, it's a statement that I had put up there a while ago for uh, a really a conversation that I was having. I had a number of uh, international instructors that I was kind of teaching how to teach or giving a giving a Skype essentially a, a Skype uh, meeting on um, the sociological and cultural um, standpoints of the, the dance. So that was sort of the name of the uh, workshop. Awesome. It's really um, nice to hear somebody say like, oh yeah, go into the arts. Because usually it's like, avoid the arts. <laughs> go into the art sciences. Exactly. <laughs> Learn how to file. Well, I find that you can generally pull a lot from, um, you know, liberal arts. A lot of it has to do with just becoming sort of a well-rounded and educated person, generally speaking. You know, and that's certainly not to say that going into the sciences can't deliver the same thing. But, you know, sciences, by their very necessity, require you to specialize in a very, very specific sort of way. It's like, I think that if you're if you're not sure what you want to do, humanities is the way to go. You know, something in liberal arts. People if you're are positive. I'm sorry. People are changing careers far more than they used to in the past. Now, change. I mean, you're an example. People are doing like they're not sticking in one job for their whole life. They're doing this, doing that, moving around. It's a lot more fluid yeah. now. Yeah. 
I would definitely think about, I mean, it, like if I had a kid and they were getting ready to go to college, my recommendation would be give serious consideration to either a double major or a major and a minor. And one of them, you know, one of the more liberal arts uh, perspectives, because it's just incredibly helpful moving forward. Uh, so just, just for a quick, quick break here. So what we're going to do now is, is going to go into the, the card game, but everything going good for you? Like you're good for time? It's about half an hour left, I think, to, to get through this. Cool. Sure. Okay, so we're coming back. Okay. All right, so now we're going to the highlight of this episode. We're going to be talking about a Game of Thrones, the living card game. Um, like all here has, hasn't played any card games, and a lot of our people, uh, listeners, haven't. So this is going to be more of a simple introduction uh, to the game. Um, so we're wondering, Damon, if you could tell us in about five minutes or so, just like what exactly it, like is a living card game? What is what is this game, a Game of Thrones, and what's like the goal of it, and what's some of the best aspects? I know that's tough to to say <laughs> shortly, but like, I mean, if you go longer, that's fine. So, <laughs> uh, a living card game is a different kind of model for the card game. It eliminates the blind buy model of uh, purchasing, where you would normally buy a booster pack or a starter and most, if not all, of the cards would be randomized with uh, different levels of rarity. The LCGs, everything has the same kind of rarity. It's really just up to you to decide which product is going to help you best with you know, the deck that you want to build. There's no requirement to buy everything to uh, compete since you know exactly what uh, you're going to get out of it. Uh, as far as the a Game of Thrones, the card game, it is a either head-to-head, two-player, or a multiplayer game, which can support up to six players, where each person has two specific decks. So they have one deck that has all of their characters and locations and items and uh, special event cards that represent um, various scenes in the novels. And then they have what's called a plot deck. And the plot deck is uh, seven cards that get flipped over one at a time as the game progresses. And it gives you a global ability um, as far as how much gold you're going to get for that turn, uh, who, what your initiative is. Your initiative determines who's going to go first and what your claim is. And your claim is the number that if you win a challenge, your opponent is going to have to satisfy that by fulfilling um, certain uh, penalties or you gain certain rewards based on whatever that number is. In addition to that, most of them will have a special ability that will uh, go off either when they're first revealed or at some later point. For example, like what are the families in there? Yeah, so uh, we have uh, a few main factions. So we have... Um, Starting off with Baratheon, Lannister, Stark, and uh, Targaryen as the four main factions that you can play in the core set. And then Greyjoy and Martell are introduced in their own deluxe expansions. Now, we do have uh, other houses represented, but they are usually represented by how they interact with those houses or they are shown as neutral. So we have Frey characters that are neutral. There are Tyrell characters, some of which are Baratheon, some of which are Lannister, some of which are what they call dual faction. They're actually represented by 
both sides or both factions. Then you have things like House Bolton, which are affiliated with uh, House Stark, but they operate in a completely different way, almost antithesis of how a regular Stark deck would operate. Which, of course, you know, if you've read the series, it's not that surprising. They play differently, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the classic matchup, of course, is Stark versus Lannister. So House Stark is really big on military. So there are three types of challenges that a player can execute every turn. Um, Military, intrigue, and power. And if I beat you in a military challenge, you must choose one of your characters to die. Uh, this game has a um, a respected rule of unique characters. So if you lose a unique character, if it gets killed, uh, it can't come back. Like if you have another one in your deck, you can't use it. It's just a dead card. Versus non-unique characters, uh, which if they go away and you have more that you draw into, you can still use them. So military is Stark's big strength. So they will do military challenges, and they have special ways of upping claim and claiming more power, and power is how you win the game. 15 power, and the first person to that number wins. Lannister, on the other hand, is all about the intrigue challenge. They are backstabbers, they are sly, they have a military presence, but they are not as good in direct military confrontation as Stark. So... They go by uh, the Intrigue fashion. And if you win an Intrigue challenge, your opponent must discard a card from their hand at random. So they sort of remove options from uh, the player. Most new players opt for Stark, and not just because it's Stark, but also because military challenges appear to be the strongest in the game. Uh, Intrigue challenges and Lannister tend to get... uh, the attention of more experienced players, uh, particularly if even if not necessarily this card game, but of card games in general, because they recognize that the removing of uh, potentialities from your opponent's hand has a longer term uh, effect on the game. So if you sit down and you're playing Stark and I'm Lannister, they have very different means of uh, attacking. And so they, each place that they're strong in attack is also where they're strong in defense, but the places that they're weak in attack, they're weak in defense. So the player who can figure out how to best minimize their weakness and exploit their strength is the one who's going to win. Are you taking this in, Michal? It's a little hard to... <laughs> I think he's covering it very well, but it's hard to picture it if you don't actually see it in your hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what a challenge is, actually. Well, a challenge would be uh, when you would commit characters to, you know, essentially fight some kind of battle. Now, it might be a battle of swords in the fashion that, you know, Rob Stark would do, or it could be a intrigue gambit, the type that Tyrion would do. You know, Rob's going to run around with his sword and command his armies, and Tyrion is going to his mind. Both of them can result in incredibly deadly results, but how they got there was just very different. Uh, The third challenge is the power challenge, and power challenge, if you win that, you get to take power from the house card, which represents the accumulated total power that your house has managed to gather during the quest for, you know, the Iron Throne, and move one power for each claim, onto your house. 
So if I have five power on my house card and you beat me with a two claim plot, you get to take two power from my house card and move it to yours. So essentially that's a four power swing. I've lost two and you've gained two. And as I said, the first person to 15 wins. And Baratheon is incredibly strong in the power challenge. I'm just looking at, at, the, at the Fantasy Flight games. You guys have a video up there as well. We'll put a link up to that for people if they want to see pictures, like to see, to see it in, in your, your eyes, what's going on. I mean, it's a basic game, but it gets very complicated eventually, right? With like the little rules and, and uh, combinations. Yeah. Uh, I actually liken it to chess in a lot of ways. You know, mm. chess is a pretty simple game to understand in the root of it. It does not take long to sit down with a chessboard and explain how the pieces move and what the ultimate objective is. But that is just enough to allow you to sit down and understand that you're losing. It's not really enough to help you, you know, be able to slow the loss. Um, it takes, you know, it takes a fair amount of time to really understand how to craft a strategy and then how to create a defense and then how to learn to recognize traps that are being laid for you. And it's pretty much the same way with a game. You, know, you play the game and you get two people who really are novice at the game and they'll just smash at each other. They'll commit all their characters for their challenges and the other person will not you know stick everybody in there for defense and then when it's their turn they'll have nobody left to stand for challenges so it takes you know a fair amount of time before somebody eventually wins then as they get better they start being much more tactical about okay well i'm not going to commit all my characters to attack for the military because i still want to have somebody left to do an intrigue and power challenge and then the person who's being attacked goes you know what i can't actually beat him in all three of these, if I commit, you know, to defend all the challenges, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to kill off, you know, my money lender and lose the military challenge. But instead, I'm now going to be able to beat him on the power and be able to beat him on intrigue. And that's where, you know, that first real level of understanding of what's going on starts to happen when you recognize that losing is sometimes the path to victory mm. or to put it another way, it's like, you know, you can win every battle and still lose the war, just like Rob. So you have to be like Littlefinger and be willing to sacrifice pawns for the greater... Yep. <laughs> for your own or, you can, or you can be like Varys and just constantly manipulate everybody to do the things that you want them to do. Mm. And just never appear like, oh, wow, is that what's going on? I didn't even see that coming, except I did, and you did exactly what I wanted you to do. So how's the uh, or melee, which is groups, and then joust is one on one. Yes. Um, it, it, with, generally, these kind of games often joust is is preferred. Is that, is that how it is, or is, this, is there still like people playing melee out there? Uh, how does it? I would say that the competitive players tend the very very serious uh, as self identified I should say serious players like the joust because it's easier. You have one opponent, and whoever's Whoever gets the best cards and has a very solid plan is going to win. So if I draw into my good stuff before you draw into your good stuff and I don't make any mistakes, I'm going to win the game. Melee is a lot harder because you have multiple players. So I need to not just protect myself from you, but I need to protect myself from Michael. I need to protect myself from you know two 
other players, sometimes three other players total, you know, depending on how many people are sitting down to play the game. And so a lot of the people who are more used to traditional card games, or I should say, when I say traditional CCG card games, uh, prefer the Joust. And they think that melee is a lot of luck. But the thing is, is that good melee players win again and again and again. And nobody's that lucky. So, you know, every year you get to the final, you know, couple of tables and you see the same faces. And it's because they understand how the game works. So melee is a lot less about the specific cards that are in your hand, you know, how you're going to play them, and more like poker in a lot of ways, which is the I play the players, not the cards. If I can get you to attack Mikhail, then I don't need to attack her. You've left yourself open because a bunch of your characters are kneeling, and now I can attack you both. It's actually very similar, I guess, to the to the board game in that way with the diplomacy and not peaking too quickly. Like you want to peak second sometimes, let the first guy get beat down, and then exactly. maybe to sneak the victory. <laughs> Exactly. Which is to say, it's very much like the books. Mm. You know, the person who runs out ahead and, hey, look, I'm going to be king, uh, is usually not the person who's left standing at the end. I'm going to have to tell my sister about this. She figured out within two seconds that the way to win Settlers of Catan was to not smash everybody and get the longest road, but to, Mm. like, build settlements. And she's, like, buying all these settlements and we're, like, fighting over the longest road and then she won like the second game she'd ever played. And then I stopped playing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like she'd be a natural player for a game of Thrones. I think, I think yes. So like the learning curve for this game, say like somebody who was completely new to card games with this, could this be a game that they could get into or is it better to have some experience? What, what do you think? Um, actually to be honest, since so many people's experience comes from um, something like magic, and this game plays very, very differently. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, the coming from a non-CCG background is actually beneficial. Hmm. Uh, I mean, not to say that you know the person who's very experienced in the different types of CCGs isn't going to be amazing at it. They're going to be able to have a much stronger grasp of the strategy much faster. Uh, but a lot of people end up... Um, you know, topping out. They hit a ceiling where the games are different. And so that player who doesn't have uh, preconceived notions about how something is supposed to be done continues to make mistakes, but they're learning from their mistakes all the time. The person who stops, who starts with that good background starts, you know, hits the ground running, but they don't get a chance to actually appreciate the differences in the game nearly as uh, quickly and in result is that uh, they yeah they just sort of top out hmm. uh, at least until you know those changes and differences start uh, taking root and then they're like oh you know what it's not just a case of getting out the biggest baddest you know creature possible and going over and smashing my opponent's face with it which you know is a perfectly legitimate way of playing um say like red in magic you know it's there's a lot more subtlety to it so even house stark which is about you know i'm gonna go in i'm gonna win all these military challenges there is a whole lot of subtlety in how you're going to accomplish that because like i said it's not one challenge it's three challenges that are going on and so 
you have to be able to learn how to defend and when to attack. How oh, is it best to have a like what to go come in with a group of four people to start? It? Like, what's a good number you think, and what's some good purchases to start with? Um, I well, the core set is is where we recommend everybody start. I mean, it was the reason why that was created. It gives you four pre-constructed decks that you can play right off the bat, and they are they are all pretty balanced for um, melee play. Uh, they require a little bit of adjustment if you're going to play just head-to-head, if you're going to play the Joust. But for, for Melee, it's really good. Now, whether or not someone should start with Joust or Melee is sort of a personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll, you'll find lots of uh, discussion and back and forth on like Board Game Geek about which is the best way to do it, or our own forums um, at the Fantasy Flight Games or on uh, Card Game DB. Uh, I personally think that melee is a great way to do it if you have one person in that group who knows how to play, and then you can have three people who don't. Because that one person can shepherd everyone through, and because there are multiple uh, players, you know, like I will go first, and then you will go second, I will go third, and each player gets to learn how the mechanics of the game function by watching the players ahead of them. And so by the time it gets around to that last player's first turn, everybody knows what's going on and how it's played. And I had heard on the forums that buying a second core is, is pretty good. Just, just just two cores, you can actually get a lot of uh, decks out of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, if one core is really intended for straight play, like we want to sit down, we want to play this like a board game. A uh, second core, I think, is a decent purchase if you want to get into deck building, but you don't really want to dive into the deep end it's like you're going from the bunny slopes for like downhill skiing to sort of like still staying on like the green circle but you're going for a longer run with maybe some turns involved you know the the deep end hitting those intermediates and uh advanced slopes are definitely more about getting the the deluxe expansions and then the chapter packs where you know there's no real guide on how to build decks. You just grab the cards that you want and you shove them together and you keep taking things out and putting other things in until you start winning. What's the, the gaming community like? With tournaments and... So what are the like big events that people melee and joust at with little pieces of paper? <laughs> I'm not um, trying to make fun. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. So I'm sorry, so re- repeat the question. What is it like between them? What are the... Oh, I just mean like the gaming community. Um, I mean, do you see one developing of you know players, or is it kind of more spread out? Um, I would say that a lot of the players um, are you know they play they play both sides. Some people just really think that one is better for tournament play. Others people think it's better for um, like social play. Uh, so there's not a real division in the community between them is. As like, oh, well, this group only plays this or this group only plays that. You find very limited amounts of that. Uh, the, the community as a whole is pretty uh, pretty good. They, you know, they're very open. They're more than willing to teach. Uh, they will not pull out their best killer deck against somebody who's only been playing for a week or two. So very welcoming, very understanding, very willing to help uh, new players with things like strategy and, um, you know, 
helping them decide what kinds of things that they want to purchase or what kind of decks that they want to make. It just seems like it's very popular worldwide. I think I, think I saw a video of, of a tournament in China recently. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I was just in communication with their uh, 2013 champion. The winners of uh, the national championships uh, for China and um, the world champions get to uh, design a card with me uh, for the game itself. So it gets printed, and awesome. as long as it's not a unique character, their likeness even gets used uh, on the card. <laughs> That's a nice surprise, I think. Yeah, very much so. Are they generally, like, they're not meant to be, like, uh, game-breaking cards, though, right? They're just, like, a generic, like, good good card. Like, you're not meant, you're not trying oh, they're, to... They're no. very good cards. They're very good cards, but they are not, no, they are not broken, generally speaking. Every once in a while, something comes up that will definitely be, you know, much stronger than the norm. But, you know, that happens in this kind of game because it's continually expanding and there are so many, uh, so many cards. So it's like every card is its own piece and figuring out the different combinations that are possible sometimes can, you know, catch us uh, by surprise when we realize that this card that we released, you know, four years ago and this card that came out last week and then this other card that was totally unrelated uh, combined to do an amazing effect. Mm. Now, it's rarely something that breaks the game, but it is definitely something that uh, every once in a while is unexpected. That would be so funny if you just like sat down to play this game with somebody and you'd be like, oh, have you played this before? Yeah, a couple times. And then you looked at your deck and it's the person sitting across from you. <laughs> that actually happens. And right. it's <laughs> when it does. So is there any official way to play the game online or is, is that planned at all in the future? I don't know if you're allowed to comment on it yet. Or... Uh, there, there is no official way to play the game online. And that sort of thing is so far above my pay grade that I couldn't even begin to tell you whether or not it's something that is planned or not. How do you see the, the future of the game? Where do you see it in, in a few years or in five years or any, any, any predictions on it or where would you like it to go? Um, constantly growing. <laughs> that's where I see it and that's where I would like it to go. Uh, I would really love to... Uh, see this game just continue to grow the the hbo series has definitely put the game uh in the forefront of a lot of people uh, i mean it's been around for since 2002 but you know not a lot of people who are gamers were aware of it hmm. and you know not to mention that you know a game of thrones has become a huge success for hbo uh it's brought a lot of attention to George's work, uh, a lot of attention to his other novels, of course, as well as to uh, our games. And it happened to be, a, I mean, to me at least, a perfect storm because, you know, the whole idea of like geek chic and tabletop games and stuff are just going on their own sort of like renaissance right now. It's pretty fantastic. It's something I wanted to just point out to Michal, like you, as is just what's really interesting about these collectible card games is they evolve, and not just from the designers, but from the people playing them. People playing different decks every year and bringing them to tournaments. They, they change the strategies, and they have an impact. I think I find that pretty fascinating to see the way that the game slowly evolves over the years. Yeah, it creates uh, what they call a meta game, uh, where you know it's these cards have been out for a while, and they're no longer the new cards. So people set them aside 
in exchange for going for whatever the new hotness is. And then if you can predict what other people are going to play and you pull out older cards that they had, you know, sort of like put out of their mind, you can do a lot of damage and just, you know, white, walk right through a tournament because nobody was prepared for, you know, you to come in with a deck that was 40% of cards that were like four or five years old. It's actually related to, to the creating cards. If you could make a card of Damon Stone in the game, what house would you be and what would you be your attributes or abilities? <laughs> uh, well... There is discussion about a character that's already in the books, um, Damon Dance for me. So I would, I might go for that one. Damon Dance for me, yeah, that, that would fit, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's there's constant questions about whether or not that had anything to do with me, and it's like I don't know. I've asked George, and he hasn't <laughs> responded. Um, but the character did come out in the books after we had met, uh, had dinner, and my boss broached the topic of the conversation that I was an international dance instructor. and hmm. I like to think that maybe it had something to do with that, but in all likelihood, you know, it was completely, completely... Uh, you it, was know, a prophecy. it was a prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Um, actually, I'm sure I would probably choose to be a Martel character. Hmm. We do know that he, he isn't afraid to, p- to put references to people he knows in the books, though, and characters and that sort of thing. They'd... That is true. That is true. That would be cool if it was you. That just, just, I would just, if I was you, I'd probably just go with that. I'd be like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> what happens to Damon? I should look up what happens to him. Is he, is he probably brutally murdered or something? Uh, he's, no, he's one of uh, the Bolton boys. So he's one of Ramsey's compatriots. So he's still alive and kicking right now. He's For just a <laughs> horrible human being. Yeah. <laughs> He's not one of the ones, one of Ramsey's boys that gets killed. Then he's still like he, he's still around. Okay, yeah. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, yeah. uh, or the best of my recollection, I should say he's still alive. Interesting. Oh, he wrote the pink letter. <laughs> okay. Uh, are there any members of House Manwitty in the card game? Um, there actually is. Uh, Dagos Manwitty is uh, there. Awesome. Like, uh, I guess he he's under the uh, the Martells then. Like he, yes, only for them. Yeah. If you go to cardgamedb.com uh, uh, and go to the uh, Game of Thrones search page, you can put in Dagos Manwitty and you'll see a picture of him. I mean, we, we already mentioned it, but I mean, like, your name just, just happens to fit already. Like, it just fits the series. It just seems like yeah, this was yeah. a route in life. It worked out. Like, how did your parents know that it was going to work? <laughs> <laughs> you saw the prophecy in the prophecy books. You were the card game maker that was promised. <laughs> <laughs> just go with that. I like that. Yeah. So we just have a couple more questions from our listeners here. Maybe a bit more technical, but it's not that much longer. Um, sure. Michal? Uh, yeah. Um, Abacad um, wants to know, how do you guys handle um, spoilers in, in the story, I guess, of the game? Um, because the game's older than the TV show. Um, well, we don't really worry so much about the TV show. Uh, I mean, you know, we we had, I mean, according to the television show, we've had spoilers in since well before the TV show, before uh, HBO had even picked up the option for uh, the game, or for the Game of Thrones. So we kind of just have to move on from there and, you know, hopefully anybody who's watching it 
won't understand the context of most of the things that we show. Uh, generally speaking, we try and present the characters um, in a fashion that if you don't know what happens to them, looking at that character is not going to be something, uh, a picture, a depiction of that character is not going to be something that immediately pops up in your mind. Like, oh my God, Jamie lost his hand. You know, I did actually try to get a card uh, for Jamie where he was wearing, you know, his golden hand and it got uh, turned down because George didn't want that kind of thing to be um, brought out in the game because it might be the first time that somebody ends up seeing it and he wanted it to have, you know, the proper amount of impact. So we have a card called like the Red Wedding, but it does not depict anything that would specifically give it away. And if you hadn't read it, um, or now seen it, you wouldn't understand what it was referring to specifically. Um, although, because we try to marry the effect with the scenes, um, you might have some general idea. I mean, it's called the Red Wedding, and if you choose a lord and a king, or I'm sorry, a lord and a lady, one of them dies, and one of them claims to power. So, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out exactly... Yeah. Got over that but, hump now. Everyone's seen that, so they says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you use uh, do you spoiler chapter material in, for creating cards? Or not? Um. Yes. Yes. Uh, if anything that he has written that is actively out in uh, public works, but we try to be really careful about what we're going to depict because not everybody wants to do that. Well, I mean, a great example is House Martell became House Martell in the game before they had ever really made a solid appearance in the books. So, you know, but if you read the the back where it talks about the family trees and lineages, you knew that they existed, but they had not up until that point actually had any meaningful presence outside of um you know, the Red Viper and his, you know, paramour. Was George quite involved in, in the in the card game before? Like, he would veto cards or that sort of stuff? Or, like, how does it work? Like, was he... Um, the unique cards, the, the characters, locations, and items uh, that are properly named, he, uh, he does have a veto power for. Actually, and related to unique characters, as Kay Centurion was just wondering, so how do you, like, what's the criteria for choosing unique characters or how do you decide them this he was saying like damon marbrand adam adam's father is, is he in there but he's very minor so it's just like is it just somebody who just you find interesting in there or how, how do you pick them or choose them? um frequently it's a case of me uh i had talked about how i read the uh the series in sort of a specific way uh as a designer and um when i first got hired on the first project that i did was the uh, Queen of Dragons box, which of course, obviously, is Daenerys Targaryen and the Targaryen faction. So what I did is I read the entire series, everything that had been released to date, but I only read her chapters. Hmm. So I, I cut everything else out so I could totally focus in on what her story was. And then I tried to present that as faithfully as I could within uh, the game creating mechanics and choosing characters based on um, what the game needs, but also what I felt would 
give uh, the most faithful representation. He's not a minor character in the world. Uh, so because he holds a rather, you know, strong place there, we, you know, we bring him into the game and we give him, you know, stats and abilities that are the equivalent of the kind of reputation that he holds uh, within Westeros. We just lost you for a second, but you, you, I think you just said Damon Marbrett is. You said there was a, was a lord in, in his area, even though we haven't seen him on screen. He's one of like one of the lords under Tywin. I think yes. said. We, just, we, we got cut off on who it was. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, Damon Marbrett. Sky Walter wants to know if there are any cards that you wish could be removed from the game. No, no. Um, I mean, there are cards that. If you know, I had the opportunity to tweak a little this way or that way, I probably would do them slightly differently. But there's none that I would take out. Sorry. I think he's commenting on Ghost's card, probably. He's like, he should tweak it. <laughs> Make it look more like me. <laughs> um, and what's your favorite house to play as? Um, it used to be Martell. Um, but then it became Targaryen, and then it became... Uh, Greyjoy. I think right now Greyjoy is probably my favorite house. I always go for the underdogs. So whatever everybody else is playing is what I tend to avoid. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, Martell is my favorite house because they're sneaky. You know, they they sort of attack sideways rather than going right out and smashing something. They would prefer to take the long, subtle approach. They're very good at getting you back right when you think that you've won. You know, they turn it into a pirate victory. And you're like, yeah, I probably should not have attacked you at all. That was probably a mistake. And every house has a, it's like special, like, um, was it the trait or its own thing? And they have vengeance, I think, right? Like that, some sort of ability yeah. related to that. Each, yeah, each house has its own keyword, which is only present on cards for that house and the keyword gives them a special ability martell's is uh vengeful which means uh when you uh attack or defend you have to do what we call kneeling a character so you turn it from its upright position 90 degrees sideways to indicate that it has uh been used once it has been knelt it can't be knelt for anything else you can attack or you can defend but you can't do both if you attack for your military, that same character can attack for intrigue or power unless there's some special card effect, um, you know, in operation. Vengeful says that when you lose a challenge, you may stand as uh, when you lose a challenge as the defender, you may stand as many uh, characters with Vengeful as you want. So I lose one challenge and then I bring back my entire army to, you know, fight another day, as it were. It's very thematic. Uh, I think so. I think that it really came together. That was one of uh, Nate's inclusions, which I was a big fan of. How are the artists at FFG? Do you have like people like hired there, and how's your interaction? Like, if you want to get a card drawn, mm, oh, we don't actually hire artists. Uh, we have an art department that uh, solicits artists. So we have a stable that we use, but they are all freelancers. If you were designing a card, do you design all the cards first and then send it to them to draw? Like, do you have any input? Like, how does that? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I design the cards and then I will write the art descriptions. So essentially, the artist will get um, my description that says this is what the card should look like. 
and then they will do their interpretation of my interpretation of you know a person or a scene from you know George's novels. So there's a rule book, and then there's a there's a fact frequently asked questions that is really big. Uh, is there any plan to make like a new rule book or to upgrade the fact? Or, or, it, or it seems like for somebody who's moving into the the fact here, it, 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 it has all the answers, but it's huge. Like it seems like the game can be very complicated. So would you recommend uh, people read the fact right away, or they wait on it when they start? Like, no, I would say that if you're learning the game, you should just go with the rule book. The fact is there for those edge cases and for that deeper knowledge. Um, I look at the rule book, like if you have a piece of, if you buy a new piece of electronic and you have your quick start guides, like this is what it takes. This is where the power button is. Remember to charge this before you try and use it. You know, this is how you make it go and go in reverse or, you know, play. This is how you search for your music. You know, whatever it is, that's what the rule book is. The FAQ is the user manual. It's the one that says, you know, there is this extra feature that if you go here, here, and here, that you can do this special thing. You know, it's meant for your power users. That's Um, an analogy, actually. I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it, yeah. So there is no specific um, plan that I am aware of to completely redo uh, the rulebook. The rulebook gets updated when the core, you know, starter rules change, which is very, 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 very infrequent. The fact gets updated um, at least four times a year, right before the uh, right before and after each of the major tournament um, periods goes on. We update the fact for any new cards. In my case, I'd get see the fact and be like, I'm never going to need this and throw it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, the fact is best to just download on your phone or on your, you know, tablet. And then you can, you know, as a PDF, and then you can just search for, you know, the key term. It's like, uh, how does immunity work? And just type in immunity and hit search and it'll pull it right up. It's not necessary for you to read it um, front to back the way that you would the rule book. Was there anything else? Yeah, one last question. If you can't give a comment or don't know, that's fine. But just because several people have asked it, including me, is it potential news on Days of Ice and Fire 2014? Oh, I'm so not the person to ask about that. That would be our uh, organized play, guys. They're completely in charge of all that sort of thing. They just tell me where to show up and what time. Were you there last year at the 2013 event? Uh, actually, I don't think it was for Days of Ice and Fire. I think I was sick that weekend. Been to any of them before? Like, I've been to pretty much everyone except for that one. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I was there actually last year, and it was good to meet a lot of people in person, like Jason. Yeah, so, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet yeah. in person this year. Yeah, but I think you you have a new center now, right? That you built up. A... We do. We do. A much larger, uh, really nice facility. Well stocked with food, I think, or snacks at least, right? Yeah, well stocked with food. <laughs> it's got an actual cafe, and it's got beer on tap. Okay, well, thanks, Damon. It's been a pleasure having you on here. I'm really glad to chat with you. Hopefully, we can meet in person whenever Days of Ice Fire does happen. Well, thank you. I had a fantastic time. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michal, for joining us. I hope you, you learned some stuff about the car. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Check us out on at our website at podcastoficeandfire.com on Twitter, at Facebook, and Damien Art, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. R plus L equals J, a powerful theory to the uninitiated. 
but we are initiated, aren't we, listener? Members of House Manwoody, join us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast, The Dragonfire Rises. Uh, my pleasure all right take care okay all right i'll let you know when it's out then excellent okay i'd really appreciate that bye thanks bye-bye bye Bye. good thanks michael that's good make sure you don't delete your file let me make sure the file's okay here let's just stop this call here hey how's it going hey good how are you good yeah, so we're gonna bring him on in a, in a minute. I just, yeah, this is good. I, I mean, I can ha- I can always do an interview with him one on one, but I feel like it's better to have a, some other person there just to kind of ask simple questions and add a little diversity. Yeah, can numbers. I ask the ultimate simple question, which is, how do you play a card game? What do you mean? Like I've never played one of these before. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you you haven't even played like you, you, Magic the Gathering or anything like that? Have you ever heard no, about that? No, no, I'm a total gaming virgin. Okay, well, basically, like. You generally have cards that then you form armies with them and you attack each other with like the armies. It's like the the cards are your characters. Like you put characters into play and you attack each other. Like episode is going to be a very basic one. Okay. Because I've played the card game, but this is not going to be like the board game episodes that are in depth. This is going to be like what is the card game and how do you play it and stuff. So it'll you, if you're following, that'll be good. Because yeah, yeah, I know nothing about card games, so this yeah. will be interesting. <laughs> Which is good, actually, because Mimi doesn't know anything either, and that, that was the role Mimi was supposed to play as the, as the person who hasn't played the game. So oh, okay. So I'm going to substitute exactly and take that place. Hello. Hey, Damon. How's it going again? Pretty good. Pardon me, I'm going to get my dog off my bed. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, <clears throat> so we're joined. Uh, Mimi couldn't make it right now she's on her way home but we have a one of our recurring guest hosts michal here to join okay. us which is good because we want to keep this as you've seen the questions and they're not that complicated because most of our listeners haven't played the game but are interested in playing it so mm-hmm. that's the target they were going with because the board game one we did was really in-depth it was more targeted to people who had already played it but this is more like general audience kind of okay thing. cool but you you've seen the questions right damon like i think i, I have seen the questions i'm getting ready to back oh. up Excellent. So I can uh, have them there to keep me focused on ideas. <laughs> I do have a tendency to uh, get tangential sometimes. Michal can say, as a listener of the podcast, we go off tangent a lot. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, Michal, you don't happen to have an, your recorder with you, do you, as well? Uh, I can turn it on. Let me see. Yeah, turn it on just in case. Nice to have a backup. Yeah. As I learned. Very painful. Vassals of Kingsgrave. How did he lose? Oh, I do have a a quick thing to mention. So my dog is a puppy. Mm -hmm. So if he starts getting loud, I might step outside. So just as a oh yeah, FYI, I'm like oh hey let's. Let's let's pause for a moment. Let me handle this. Which we can do. I mean, as I I said, it's edited, so it doesn't matter. Like we can take breaks or whatever is necessary for sure. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. He can even get his own say at the end of the podcast if he has something to say. (laughs) So. <laughs> Especially if he has an ice and fire related name. Hmm. Uh, no, no, Firefly. <gasps> nice. nice. I like it. Okay, so are we all good to go? Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Get my recorder on here.
16th, yeah. So it'll come up. Okay. Um, and which is your, um, oh, well, hang on. Uh, delete that little whatever I mean. Okay. <laughs> I remember reading Storm of Thrones with my friend at the same time. He was ahead of me, and then he got to the Red Wedding and quit for a while, and then I caught ahead. And then I got to the end. I was like, hey, you got to finish this book. There's, there's lots of stuff in there. 